I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter one, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses 12 through to 17, but I'm going to read for us from verse eight all the way to 17, just so you see the, uh, the flow of the argument that Paul is making. First Timothy one, starting in verse eight. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul exhorted young Timothy to charge certain persons from teaching any different doctrine, as there were men that were using the law of God wrongfully. And the result of this was quarrels and controversies within the church. And so Paul wants Timothy to confront this problem, and he does so. But also in verses 8 to 11, which we looked at last week, Paul wants to reassure Timothy and the church in Ephesus that God's law is in fact good so long as it's used properly. We saw that the law is from God and it's been given to restrain evil. It's been given to point sinners to their need for a savior. And it's been given as a guide for the redeemed to live a life that is honoring to God and according in accordance with his moral will. Also, we saw that the law is not contrary to the gospel, but rather is in accordance with the gospel. 
The law and the gospel are in harmony with one another. They work together, so to speak. The law leads the sinner to the gospel. The morality of the gospel is the same as the morality of the law. But at the end of that section in verse 11, Paul alludes to the fact that the gospel of God had been entrusted to him by God. And it's to this that we turn now, where Paul not only articulates the gospel, but his own personal experience of the gospel at work in his own life. This section, verses 12 to 17, is deeply personal on the part of the Apostle Paul. Here in these verses, Paul articulates the kindness of God revealed in his own life. He reveals, one, the calling that was placed upon his life, but also the salvation that he himself was a recipient of. Now, before we dig in, I want you to notice something about the structure of verses 12 to 17. Notice that in verse 12, Paul begins with thanksgiving. What he's about to articulate stems from a heart that is overwhelmed with thanksgiving to Jesus for the goodness that was bestowed upon his own life as one who was unworthy of such goodness. And also notice that in verse 17, Paul ends this section with worship towards God. He begins with thanksgiving and he ends with doxology, worship to God, and everything in between is his explanation for his thanksgiving and his worship to God. I just want you to see that because that's important. There's a pattern there. He begins with thanksgiving and it ends with worship and praise to God. So the first thing we see here is that Paul is full of thanksgiving because Jesus equipped him and called him to his service. Look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now Paul says here that Jesus strengthened him. Paul was not only entrusted with the gospel and appointed by Christ to his service, but he was strengthened by Jesus to fulfill his calling. Paul was empowered by Jesus to fulfill and accomplish the task he was given. You see, not only did Paul receive a task from Jesus, but Jesus also gave him the strength to fulfill such a task. When you read about the life of Paul, there's no way Paul could ever have done what he did if he was solely relying upon his own mere human strength. He had divine strength working within him and enabling him to do all that he could. And really, Paul here articulates, in some sense, a picture of the Christian life. The Christian life can only be lived by the strength that is given to us from God. This is why the Christian always ought to have a heart of thankfulness and always ought to ascribe to God the glory. Because not only does Jesus in his kindness call us to serve him, but then he also provides us the empowering grace, the divine strength to actually do it. And therefore, even when we are faithful in serving him, we cannot remotely boast in ourselves because the strength by which we have been faithful isn't our strength, but his. And this is why Paul 
is full of thanksgiving. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That is, he worked harder than any of the other apostles. But then he says this, Though it was not I. I work harder, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. You see, the Christian life is one that is fueled by the strength of God. Now notice, notice also Paul is thankful because Jesus judged him as faithful or trustworthy and appointed him to his service. Now let's be clear. Paul's not suggesting that he was deserving or worthy of being appointed to Jesus' service. He dismisses any notion of that by the following statement in verse 13, though formally I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But let's not allow our misunderstanding of the doctrine of total depravity to keep us from seeing God's kindness in seeing something in Paul that he would use for his purposes. Remember, Anything that was good in Paul, even before his conversion, was still from God. The image of God in fallen man has not been destroyed. That's why you can encounter unbelievers who have a strong moral compass and in fact can even display virtues at a deeper level than sometimes even Christians. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't need salvation or forgiveness. No, no, they're still lost, they're still sinful, and they are still in need of salvation. But the common grace of God has prevented them from falling into the fullness of human depravity. And whatever it was, Jesus looked at Paul and judged him to be trustworthy, despite all of his sins. See, I think this points more to the goodness and kindness of Jesus than it does to anything about the Apostle Paul. See, before Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, if you had gone around the early church and said, Jesus Christ plans to appoint Saul of Tarsus as his main man to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, I don't think there's a single person in the early church, including the apostles, who would have said, that's a great idea. Everyone would have said, what are you talking about? That man has arrested and had our fellow brothers and sisters killed for their loyalty to Jesus. He, he stood at the stoning of Stephen with a, in applause. Why in the world would, would Jesus appoint him for such a task? And here's the answer. Jesus, in his goodness and kindness, can see something in a person that none of us ever could. If you had known my father when he was 17 years old, living the hippie life, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you would never have thought he'd be a great candidate to be a missionary to the Philippines to bring the hope of the gospel to the Filipino people. And yet that's precisely what Jesus did. He saw in my father something no one else could have seen. Jesus judged Paul to be trustworthy and appointed him to his service. It's a remarkable statement. 
And Paul isn't remotely boasting or pointing to his own goodness. No, no. He understands this is a result of Jesus' goodness and kindness to him. He's giving thanks for this. He acknowledges in verse 13 that he was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Really, that word there is he was really a bully. And he was, by his opposition to the church, blaspheming the name of Jesus, persecuting the people of God. This is not a man boasting in himself, but a man full of thanksgiving for Jesus' kindness toward him. And so we see here that Jesus strengthened Paul and appointed him to his service. And Paul is full of thanks. But Jesus did even more for the Apostle Paul. And you see this in verse 13. Paul wasn't just strengthened and called by Jesus to be his servant. He was a recipient of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And, verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul understands that he was not entitled to anything from Jesus. He was a sinner. But Jesus had mercy upon him. And notice that in this passage, Paul twice speaks about the mercy that was shown to him. In verse 13, he says, but I received mercy. In verse 16, but I received mercy. He's emphasizing the mercy of Jesus in his life. And then he also gives two reasons for why he was shown shown mercy, which we're going to look at shortly. But to be shown mercy is to not receive what one deserves. Jesus could have righteously punished Paul, what he deserved. But instead, he looked upon Paul with mercy. He did not give Paul what he deserved. But Paul was a recipient of so much more than just mercy. He was not just delivered from punishment, but Jesus showered him with goodness after Goodness, As he says in verse 14, but I received mercy and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul, as he thinks about what has happened to him, um, he, he can't help. He can't help but use the language of abundance. The grace of Jesus overflowed to him with the faith and love that are in Christ. The grace of Jesus overflowed to him like a river that can't be contained. And in Paul's case, it overflowed and produced blessing upon blessing. The overflowing river of grace sprang up faith and love. I love how John Stott puts it. Grace flooded with faith, a heart previously filled with unbelief, and flooded with love, a heart previously polluted with hatred. In other words, Jesus gave Paul more than just mercy. He placed his favor and delight upon Paul. He gave him grace upon grace, kindness upon kindness, gift upon gift. Christostom, reflecting on this verse, said this, Mercy was not confined to this, that punishment was not inflicted. 
Many other great favors are implied by it. For not only has God released us from the impending punishment, that's mercy, but He has made us righteous too, and sons and brethren and heirs and joint heirs. Therefore, it is He, it is, He says, grace was exceedingly abundant, abundant. For the gifts bestowed were beyond mercy, since they are not such as would come of mercy only, but of affection and exceeding love. He received mercy from Jesus, which is more than he deserved, but he received so much more than just mercy. He received that which flows from affection and exceeding love. You see, these words demonstrate the disposition of Jesus' heart towards the Apostle Paul, a heart full of grace and love. Now, as you probably noticed, I skipped over the reason Paul gives in verse 13 for why he was shown mercy. In verse 13 and 16, Paul gives two reasons for why he was shown mercy. And we'll look at the second reason soon. But first, we need to look at the reason he gives in verse 13. Why was Paul shown mercy? Well, in the most foundational sense, we can say Paul was shown mercy because Jesus chose to be merciful. As Paul articulates in Romans 9 in reference to God, I will have mercy on whom I will. Paul understands this. Paul knows that fundamentally the only reason he was shown mercy was because God chose out of his goodness to be merciful to Paul. But Paul alludes to the fact that there were other secondary factors in his own life that played a role in the reasons for why God or why Jesus bestowed mercy upon him. And here he says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Interesting. Jesus looked at me and saw that my behavior, my sin, my blasphemy, my persecution was partly due to the result of my acting ignorantly in unbelief. What's Paul saying here? Is Paul suggesting that his ignorance and unbelief excused his sin? By no means. If his ignorance and unbelief somehow excused his sin, then it wouldn't have been mercy that he received. Paul's not suggesting that somehow ignorance means you're no longer accountable to God. Do you remember when the Apostle Peter was preaching in Acts 3 to the crowd of Jews, many of whom chose Barabbas over Jesus? Do you remember what Peter said to them? Acts 3, 17 to 21. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In other words, their ignorance doesn't mean that they don't have to repent. They still need to repent of their sin. But something about their ignorance informs God on how he relates to them. So Paul's not saying that his ignorance meant he was less accountable for his sin. So what's going on then? Well, a few things. For one... I think Paul is contrasting himself to that of the false teachers. Paul, before his conversion, was devoted to the law, devoted to the Jewish laws. 
and he misused them and interpreted them out of ignorance. He didn't have the knowledge of Jesus like these false teachers did. They were not ignorant, and yet they were misleading. Also, Paul, in all that he did before his conversion, he was genuine. Meaning, he really believed that he was serving God. He was zealous for God's name, and he believed these Jewish Christians were undermining, undermining the true Jewish faith. Paul was not like the religious leaders like Caiaphas, who had Jesus murdered and who were driven by corruption and power. Paul was genuinely wanting to honor God with his life. He was, as he says in Philippians 3, blameless and zealous for the things of God. But it was a zeal rooted in ignorance and unbelief. And that's why when Jesus confronts him on the Damascus Road, he says, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And Jesus looked upon Paul, and partly due to his ignorance, he had mercy. You know what this should remind you of? Jesus' words from the cross. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them, for they are ignorant. Now what is inferred from this? Does this mean that if one is in sin but isn't ignorant, they can't receive the mercy of God? Absolutely not. We know from Scripture and from human experience that God has shown mercy and saved people in their wickedness who were not as ignorant as Paul. So God doesn't only show mercy to the ignorant. Sometimes he shows mercy to the knowledgeable and yet are in willful rebellion. But it's really here speaking about his own situation. He's telling us the factors for why God showed him mercy. But, and I don't think we can be too dogmatic about this, but I think we can say this should serve as a serious warning for those of us who have knowledge and yet still refuse to follow Jesus. There does seem to be an indication that rebellion against God that is rooted in knowledge is far worse than rebellion rooted in ignorance. Even the Old Testament speaks of intentional versus untentional sins. And so let me say this to those of you who are here and have a specific knowledge but aren't followers of Jesus. If you have knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and yet continue to, to live in sinful rebellion against him, be warned. Be warned. Now you might say, I don't have that knowledge. Yes, you do. I just told you. You're now accountable to God. You have that knowledge. Jesus is full of mercy. He has more mercy than all the oceans combined have water. But don't test his mercy. Your knowledge makes you more accountable to God. That's partly why Jesus talks about how it will be worse for those on the day of judgment who were there during his own ministry than for those at Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they had a greater revelation. They beheld God in the face of Jesus, where Sodom and Gomorrah knew nothing 
about God in the way that the people at Jesus' time did. And therefore, the judgment will be worse for those who walked when Jesus walked. So this should serve as a warning to us. It should also serve as an exhortation for us who are followers of Jesus. When you see the wickedness of men, men who are out to destroy the church of Jesus, like the Apostle Paul was, is the natural disposition of your heart, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is it one of pity and mercy, knowing that many are acting, behaving as they are due to their sheer ignorance and unbelief? And if not for the mercy of God, you and I would still be walking in ignorance and unbelief. Or is your natural response one of rage and anger, wanting God to call down lightning and fire like the two disciples, James and John, did? Are you more like Jonah, who was enraged at God's mercy towards the Ninevites? Or are you more like God, who saw the Ninevites and had pity and mercy for they did not know their left hand from their right hand. See, Jesus has an overflowing fountain of mercy for the ignorant and unbelieving. What about us? So Paul has given thanks to Jesus for his strengthening and calling him to his service. He's articulated the mercy that was given to him and the grace that overflowed to him with faith and love that are in Jesus. And now in verse 15, Paul moves away from his own personal experience just for a second to declare a statement of truth that is the grounds for Paul's experience. In other words, Paul's saying that all that has happened to me is fundamentally a result of this singular truth. What is that truth? Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the first of Paul's trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles. We saw last week that the law was given for the lawless and disobedient. And here we see that Jesus came into the world to save the lawless and disobedient sinners. And this is the foundation for all that Paul has received by the merciful hand of Jesus. And he wants to make it very clear that this statement is trustworthy. Like you can really trust and believe that this statement is true. Jesus really did come into this world to save sinners. But not only does he want us to know that it's trustworthy, he wants us to know that it's worthy of our full embrace. One should embrace it, accept it, believe it, bank one's life on it. And Paul's saying this because of his own experience. In other words, he's saying the only viable explanation for why I have received mercy and grace is because Jesus came into this world to save sinners like me. There is no other explanation for how I went from being a persecutor of God's people to being a lover of his people. There's no other explanation for how I once blasphemed the name of Jesus, but now I worship his name. The explanation is 
Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. This is the gospel that Paul was entrusted with. The pre-existent Son of God humbled himself and clothed himself in humanity and laid down his life in the place of sinners, bearing the penalty and the righteous judgment of God for human sin. This is what Paul tells us is trustworthy and deserving of our full embrace. There are so few things today that are trustworthy. So few things. But hear me this morning. There is nothing more trustworthy than this. Jesus is merciful and loves sinners and laid down his life for sinners like you and me. Trust it. Trust him. Embrace him. Now, after Paul declares this theological truth, he once again turns personal. And he says something profound. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or of whom I am the worst. That's a profound statement. Was Paul really the worst of sinners, objectively speaking? The answer is no. But here with these words, Paul displays the heart attitude of someone who has truly come to realize the wonder of God's mercy. Confronted with his sin by the law and overwhelmed with the mercy and grace of Jesus for sinners, there is no place for Paul to look and compare himself to any other man. Before God, he believes himself to be the worst of sinners and he marvels that Jesus would show him such mercy and grace. He captures what the heart of a true Christian looks like when they think about their own sin and the mercy of God that was shown to them. There's no room for, but compared to that dude, I'm pretty decent. Because the true Christian doesn't compare himself to any other man. He compares himself to the pure holiness of God. And in that comparison, his sin overwhelms him But his soul rejoices, for in Jesus he has found mercy. See, I think Paul, with this statement about himself, captures for us the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his own eyes to heaven, but beat his breasts, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. The posture of his heart before God is as though he is the only sinner on earth. He has a posture of humility. And I think this captures what Paul was feeling in his own soul when he thought about his own sin in light of the mercy of Jesus. Now it's at this point, after he has declared the gospel, he returns to the mercy that he was shown. 
And he provides the second reason for why Jesus had mercy on them. And it's profound. It's remarkable. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy once again for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, that is the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's incredible. I want you to notice what he's saying. Paul's saying that not only does Jesus use the preaching of the gospel to bring sinners to faith and eternal life, he also has providentially chosen individuals to be a display of his incredible mercy and patience towards sinners. In other words, he has trophies of grace, so to speak. Paul's saying Jesus wants to make it clear to those in the future that if he can show mercy to Paul and save him, then he can show, also show mercy and grace to you despite the wretchedness of your own sin. If Jesus can show patience and mercy towards a man who blasphemed his name, persecuted his blood-bought people, then why would you think that you're beyond the mercy of Jesus? Let me take it to another level. If you understand when Paul had been set apart by God, this statement is even more remarkable. When did God set Paul apart to be the messenger to the Gentiles? Many think at his conversion, but it wasn't. It was before he had even been born. Galatians 1, 15 to 16, Paul says this, But when he, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born, And who called me by his grace, now he's speaking about his conversion, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So so think about this. This is baffling. God set Paul apart before he was ever born. But God in his wisdom and in his providence chose to reveal Jesus to him much later in his life. In other words, God set Paul apart before he was born, but intentionally, intentionally chose not to call him by his grace and reveal Jesus to him until after he had committed blasphemy, until after he became a persecutor and a bully. So that... Why did God do that? Why did God wait? So that Jesus might display his perfect patience for future believers who would believe upon him for eternal life. You see, some of you here, God chose in his wisdom to allow you, to allow you to live an immoral life for many years. But in his providence, he saved you at the time that he saved you. And maybe your life, your story is meant to be used by Jesus to show his incredible patience and mercy to those who will also one day believe. And maybe some of you who from a very young age, Jesus in his wisdom and mercy saved you. Maybe he did this to display his unbelievable faithfulness to his children over the years. 
that he can save you from a young age and keep you walking in the truth. You see, truths like this should call to mind scriptures that cause us to marvel at the mysterious ways of God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, think about this. Jesus providentially allowed people, allowed Paul, to persecute his own blood-bought followers so that Paul could be a picture of his perfect patience for his blood-bought future followers. This should cause us to just break out in praise like Paul does in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. You see, as Paul writes this and ponders the kindness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the patience of Jesus. He can't help but end off this section with doxology, praise and worship to God. He began this section with thanksgiving and he ends it with praise and worship to God for who he is. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul here captures for us what the Christian life is ultimately about. The Christian life is fundamentally about thanksgiving to God for what he has done and worship for who he is. And what he has done is meant to lead us to the worship and contemplation of who he is. That's what you see here. He begins with thanksgiving for all that he has done and he ends in worship and praise for who he is. Paul is full of thanksgiving for all that Jesus has done for him. And it leads him to worship God for who he is. As he says, he is the king of the ages. That is, he is the one who is sovereign over time and all of history. From age to age, he is God because he is one who is outside the time and space continuum. He dwells in another dimension of reality that is beyond our ability to understand. Not only that, he is immortal, which means literally indestructible. Him being immortal speaks to his eternal, enduring existence. He cannot be removed or destroyed by anything or by time. He cannot change. Also, he is invisible. Now, this automatically means that he is outside the material world. No man can see God. He is not bound by space or time, but he is the invisible God, which means this. The invisible is more real than the visible. You see, the modern man says the opposite. What you can see is real. But Christianity makes the opposite claim. It's what can't be seen that is truly real. 
and all that can be seen is meant to lead us to the one who is invisible. Lastly, he speaks to the uniqueness of God. He is not just one God, but he is the only God. Talk about an offensive statement for our culture. There are no other gods but the God of Israel, the God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who has made himself known in the face of Jesus. He alone is the only God, the King of the ages, immortal, invisible. And it's to this God that Paul breaks out into praise and worship that he alone would have honor and glory forever and ever. But I want you to notice the wonder of who this God is. If you were to just read verse 17, it would be easy to think that this God was so transcendent, so distant, so powerful, that he would take no interest in the affairs of mankind. But it's precisely the opposite that we see. The king of the ages, the king of the ages, this immortal, invisible God, is also the God who draws near and showers unworthy sinners in his mercy and grace and sets his love upon them, displaying that he is, in fact, a relational God who desires to save sinners. That this immortal and invisible God became mortal and visible in the man Christ Jesus for one purpose. To save sinners. And this is why Paul can't help but be thankful and be full of worship. You see, the redeemed are fundamentally above all else a people full of thanksgiving and devoted to the worship of God. William S. Plummer says, The righteous will never be done singing the praises of their God and Redeemer, nor will God's people ever cease to admire the wonders of his love and counsels. Let me end off by addressing two groups here. If you're here this morning, whether you're a child, a teenager, a university student, an adult, and you haven't given your life to Jesus. Why not? Why not? What's keeping you from surrendering and embracing the one who died for sinners? I plead with you today. Bow your knee to the one who died for sinners. Who loves sinners, who has mercy for sinners, and grace upon grace for sinners. To those of you who are followers of Jesus, who know of the mercy and grace of Jesus, has what Jesus done for you created in you a life defined, okay, it's important, defined by thanksgiving and worship to God? Like if someone who knows you well, if you were to ask them, what defines me? Would they say thanksgiving and worship to God? Paul is both 
full of thanksgiving and praise. It's come to define him because he knows that all he has received is a gift from the hand of a benevolent, good, merciful, kind, and gracious Savior. On November 11th, I was walking down the street at about 6.30 in the morning, going to catch the bus to take to work. And while I was walking down the street, I noticed the moon to my left, and to my right, the sun had just started to rise. And when I, when I got on the bus, I wrote this. The moon greeted me this morning, and the sun as well. What kind of God would bestow such blessings on such an unworthy creature as myself? December 15th, God has bestowed on me another precious gift of which I am so unworthy. Another little girl, Eden Allegra, born at 2.18 p.m. What kind of God would shower such blessings on a wretched sinner such as I? Last night, I was in the room, this is late at night, in one of our rooms, and I was actually just on my knees praying for about 15 minutes for today for my preaching and for all of you. And then Inez woke up and was screaming and I went in there and tried to calm her down and she wasn't calming down. And I snapped. Just after I'd spent time praying, I snapped and I yelled really loud. And um, I have no issues speaking firmly to my little girl, but I never want to do it from a place of no self-control. And I lost my self-control last night. And so I got beside her on my knees and I just kissed her and I said, Inez, I'm sorry. No matter what you're doing, I should never speak that way to you. And I left the room and cried a little bit. And yet God, in his mercy, gave me another little girl. What kind of God does that? What kind of God sees my shortcomings and goes, I got enough grace for you to have another little girl. A merciful, gracious God, abounding in steadfastness. See, when we understand that everything in this life comes to us, not because we deserve it, but because he is merciful, there is only one thing we can do and ought to do, and that is give thanks and worship. I mean, think about this. Think about the amount of people every day who experience the moon and the warmth of the sun and they think they're entitled to it. But what do we have that we have not received? The warmth of the sun, the beauty of the colors, the sounds of the birds, the gift of friendship, the delights of romantic love, the blessing of family, the pleasure of taste, the ability to see beauty, the warmth of touch, the sense of smell, the ability to hear beautiful music and sounds all throughout our human experience. This alone, this alone is enough for us to be thankful and full of worship to God. But how much more has he given us? For he has given us his own son. He has placed his mercy and grace upon us and saved us from our sins. He has declared us his beloved children who have become co-heirs with Christ himself, our older brother. He has chosen to dwell with us forever. He has given us himself that if he were to give us all the world, it would not even compare. How then can we live this life with ungratefulness? How then can we be indifferent to the worship of God? 
And so, brothers and sisters, I pray that these truths would instill in us a spirit of thanksgiving and praise that would never cease, that would define who we are. For he is worthy of such praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not just shown us mercy, but you have poured forth grace upon grace. You have placed your love on us. You have given us your Holy Spirit as a seal of the hope that we have because of Jesus. You have done so much for us. Forgive us for all the ways in which we are ungrateful. And create in us, by your Spirit, hearts full of thanksgiving for who you are and what you have done. And hearts full of praise that would marvel at the God of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.